Open your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter 5. We're in our third week of our series that I've kind of called Belong, as we talk about the idea of what does it mean to belong to God. So we've been talking about over the last few weeks that uh, there's a difference between universally belonging to God, which every person on the planet, everything on the planet in the universe, universally belongs to God. That because God created it, because he owns it, well, it, we belong to him. But there's a difference between that and then what we've been calling intentionally belonging to God, that it's really intentionally belonging to God that brings freedom, freedom from secular idolatry and worship, but also freedom from religious legalism. And not everyone gets that freedom. You have to come and put your faith in Christ for that freedom, for that life to be instilled into you. And so it starts to beg the question then, if not everyone gets that freedom, how do those of us who have that freedom, how do those of us who intentionally belong to God begin to interact with the world around us? This is the question we're going to be exploring today. But I think we have to back up even from that and just start at kind of a place of commonality. Because the, the older I get, the, the more uh, I've traveled, the more I'm amazed at how just hyper interconnected our world is. This last week, we had gone up to Farmington, and uh, Haley, and I do as well, but Haley especially, loves Mediterranean food. There's just something about, so if you've ever with us, we might take you to Mediterranean food. But they had a Mediterranean restaurant uh, there in Farmington, and it was owned by a family that I presume they were from Egypt. I'm not totally sure. That's kind of the decor in there. But uh, they had a television that was playing music videos while we were in there. And at some point it turned off, so the owner of the restaurant got out the remote and was clicking through channels. And he clicked the channel Iranian music videos. I'm not sure how often you go and look up Iranian music videos. I've not made a practice of that personally. But it blew my mind because it's, it's music videos, the subtitles are in Arabic. Uh, you know, I can't read anything. I can't understand the language whatsoever. But the music video itself looks like it was produced in Hollywood. Like the way they dress, the way the guys look, the way the girls are dressed in like cocktail dresses and they're dancing and the music behind it. It is, it is just like American music. And that, that blows my mind because in my own culturally dull assumption, I assume that like that's nothing what Iranian music would look like. But according to that, it's pretty much the same. There, there's a connectedness there that's more so than what I realized. Or uh, I told you a while back when we went to Mexico, uh, I was throwing ball with this little 14-year-old kid from Mexico. He sp like, didn't speak much English at all. I didn't speak Spanish. But he had enough to say, do you play? And he was trying to say video games. And I was like... Yeah, I play video games. And he's like, you play Fortnite? But he said it in Spanish, but I got the word Fortnite because I guess Fortnite in English is the same as Fortnite in Spanish. I don't know. But like there's, there's commonality there. There's crazy commonality between right, a 14-year-old in America and a 14-year-old in Mexico. Or, or last year when we were in Bosnia, we went to the local mall in Bosnia and we went to what I assume is like the equivalent of their Aeropostale. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I couldn't pronounce the name of the place. But they had all of these sweatshirts and like the sweatshirts would say Seattle Midwestern University which doesn't exist. But for them, that was like the epitome of high fashion because they were wearing American Western University wear, even if it didn't exist. Like, I'm not sure how well we understand or how much we comprehend just how hyper interconnected our world is, which that can be a good thing, but, but here's the problem. 
With, with that global commonality comes this increasingly universal narrative, which in my mind is really attempting to rewrite morality on the altar of self. We, we seem to be marching towards a more and more interconnected universal system. And I mean this in multiple ways. I mean this literally because what happens when a cargo ship in the Suez Canal messes up and blocks out the canal? Well, your kids' Christmas presents don't arrive on time. Do you guys understand how crazy that is? That one person makes a mistake on the other side of the globe and it results in a bad Christmas for your kid. That, that's the reality of the world we live in. That's how interconnected our world is. But it's not just literal, it's, it's figurative now. Because not only can that happen, but a 16-year-old can go viral on TikTok and gain more influence overnight than what most churches could ever dream of. And this raises some significant questions. Number one, this system of interconnected promises is it delivering on those promises? And number two, does this message that's becoming more and more global, does it align with God's intention and his design for the world? Because whether you want to recognize it or not, we live in a system. We, we live in a system. I'm, I'm gaining this, by the way. I'm, I'm using this from an author. His name's Mark Sayers. He wrote a book called Reappearing Church, so I'm kind of stealing this from that book. And it's a little bit technical, but, but hold on with me because I think it really frames where we're at and how do we answer this question of interacting with the world around us. So let's start with what is a system. A system is an interconnected set of inputs that is coherently organized in a way that achieves a desired output. So let's say we are going to get together and mass produce peanut butter jelly sandwiches, right? We're going to create a system that's going to mass produce peanut butter jelly sandwiches. So we're going to set up a system of inputs so that we can get peanut butter jelly sandwiches of the output. So we need certain inputs. We're going to need bread. We're going to need peanut butter. We're going to need jelly. But we also need labor, and we need efficient labor. So what we might do, right, is we might try to get four people together. One person pulls the bread out, lays it on the plate, passes the plate along. The second person puts peanut butter on one slice, passes it along. The second person puts, or the third person puts jelly on one. The fourth person puts it together, puts it in a Ziploc bag. That's a system, right? There's inputs, there's labor, there's bread, peanut butter, jelly, Ziploc bags. And then the output is effective, efficient production of peanut butter jelly sandwiches. It's very basic. But we live in a system that is far more complex than that, but is really trying to do a similar thing. Not just produce peanut butter jelly sandwiches, but we're trying to produce something in our Western culture. Our culture has cultivated a system designed to bring some level of corporate and individual human outputs. Namely, flourishing, happiness, peace, prosperity. And so in the eyes of our culture, what is the key input that should re receive or or result in, that's the word I'm looking for, what's the key input that should result in that output? I think if you could ask the world around us, what they would say is something along the lines of freedom. The more freedom we can have input into the system, the better the output of happiness, flourishing, whatever you want to call it. If we could just allow everyone to be who they really are within their inner self, if we could let them do what they wanted to do without any outside influence or any outside pressure, then culturally we can achieve the output of happiness and flourishing and fulfillment. That's the promise that our world is peddling, and it's becoming more and more global and universal. So then the question we have to ask is, is the input achieving the desired output? 
as we influx more and more freedom into the world, is the output more joy, more happiness, more fulfillment, more purpose? And if I were just being honest with you, and I think if you could just be honest with yourself, the answer has to be an undeniable no. Because statistics continue to show that, that rather than purpose and fulfillment and joy, we're now blitzed with choice anxiety and information overload and this endless sense of scrolling through confusion and lostness and, and this limited ability to walk forward, which results in depression and just all-around exhaustion. So the question becomes, how do we, who know there's another system, Namely, who know that there is a creator of the universe that has designed this universe to work coherently within his design. How, how do we who know that interact with those who don't see things that way? Or, to keep with our series, and here's the question I'll put up, how do we interact with those who do not intentionally belong to God? There, there's all the fill-ins. I didn't mean to give it all straight from the top, but you can take it for what it is. There we go. Thank you, Kelsey. I appreciate that. We'll get there later, too. We'll start. How do we interact with those who do not intentionally belong to God? And to answer that, I want to start in Galatians chapter 5. By the way, let me just kind of clarify here. I don't think contextually this is the a question Paul's attempting to answer. So we'll talk about that. But I think there is an implicit answer within the text of Galatians chapter 5. So again, quick context. Jewish Christians had come into the church in Galatia. They'd been telling the Gentile Christians there that those Gentiles needed to subject themselves to the Torah law. They needed to eat kosher. They needed to dress the way the Jewish people dressed. All of this stuff was what they had to start doing. Paul seems to think that's absolute hogwash. That, that really, that's not about what it means to be saved or redeemed whatsoever. And so to prove that, what Paul does is he argues that the input of the law does not result in the output of morality or freedom. In fact, it's the opposite. The input of the law results in brokenness and slavery. Of course, those who would disagree with Paul would come in and say, well, well, how can we know what's right and what's wrong, Paul, without this clear set of rules? And for Paul, the answer is found in the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, that the Holy Spirit begins to tell us what is right and what is wrong. So it's not that we need a rule book. We need the Holy Spirit. And that then will tell us what the rule is. He will tell us what the rule is. So let me just jump into this passage. We'll walk through it kind of verse by verse and then go back to our question. Verse 16, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Let us not provoke one another and envy one another. So right from the start, two key terms, verse 16. I say then walk by the Spirit 
and you will certain not, certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. So Paul is pitting against this idea of spirit and this idea of flesh. So in this term, spirit is the empowerment and direction of the Holy Spirit within you, that the person who would put their faith in Christ Jesus, the moment they put their faith, would receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, who would then begin to take residence within their heart and change their perspective, transform their lives. But, but Paul says this is different and opposed to the flesh. And the flesh being the part of human nature that causes people to put their own selfish needs ahead of everything else. So right from verse 16, what Paul seems to be saying, 16, 17, 18, is that nothing can prevail over the flesh other than the Holy Spirit. Nothing prevails over the flesh other than the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of ideas and practices and worldviews and life philosophies that can help you grow as a person, that can be to your benefit as a human, that can help you understand the way the world works, but it does not overcome the realities of the flesh. They can transition you, but they cannot transform you. So I, just to give an example, I would give an example of, let's say, there's an 18-year-old who, who grew up uh, with a bad understanding of food, and so they grew up overweight within the sin of gluttony, of, of idolizing food. And when they turn 18, they decide that they don't want to pursue that anymore, so they begin to eat healthy, they go to the gym, they exercise, and there's this transition point from where they were to who they are now. It's a good transition point. It's something that maybe is healthier for them. It gives them more energy. That's a great thing. But the question is, does that transform them? And I would argue that without the Spirit, it doesn't transform them. It just transitions from a sin of maybe gluttony to a sin of self-absorbed idolatry of health and exercise. It's transition, not transformation. It's the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit that can transform you, pushing back the works of the flesh. Well, what, what are the works of the flesh? This is what Paul's going to go to in verse 19. So four kind of categories. The first category he gives um, is right here in verse 19. The works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity. All three of these are what we could categorize as sexual sin. It's the first one that encompasses the other, so we'll just kind of focus right here on sexual impurity. And I, I know all of you woke up this morning, and you're like, I really hope Philip talks about impurity today. That's my desire. I can't wait. To, I get it, right? No one goes into church and is like, this is really should be the topic of the sermon today. But if I could just kind of be honest for a little bit, I think this in particular has become the altar on which the modern world has begun to sacrifice family and marriages and so much more. Because to our culture, outside the church, this is the epitome of liberation and freedom. This is where full liberation and full freedom can come from. And as much, or but as much as we try and pretend that sexual liberation is good and pleasurable, it doesn't change the reality and the damage that comes in breaking down families and crippling worth and destroying community. So this is where Paul starts. I think it's where we have to start. So let's start here. By the way, I'm not gonna give this much attention to everything else, but because I wanna speak to this in our culture, I wanna speak to it here. What is sexual immorality? It is any and all sexual activity outside of a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman, husband and wife. 
This includes a myriad of possibilities. It can be sleeping around, it can be cheating, it can be pornography, it can be objectifying others, it can be living provocatively, it can be intimacy outside of the covenantal marriage relationship, and it can include things like using intimacy within marriage for manipulation or intimidation. And let me just say, I, I understand where our culture is, okay? I, I grew up in this culture as well. I understand if your first inclination is to look at this passage and say, okay, man, I get, I get calling out hatred and I get calling out envy and I get calling out outbursts of anger. Those things are bad. But, but who, who are we to say who someone should or should not love? Who are we to say who's or what someone should or should not do with their body? Why should we listen to an old book's traditional values or traditional ideas of intimacy? And I hear that question, and I think the best response I can give is actually from another pastor named Christian Dawson that I heard speaking about this, and he just returns that question with another question. And it's okay, if, if we want to ask that, that's fair, but let's ask this one as well. Why listen to historically new thinkers' view on intimacy? The, the things our culture assumes that is normal and right, particularly in this category, are really unchecked byproducts of far more recent philosophers. And I know you probably don't run in these worlds, but Rousseau, Descartes, Nietzsche, Marx, especially Sigmund Freud, like heavily Sigmund Freud. So, I mean, have you ever went and read Sigmund Freud? Have you read any of his works? Don't, just don't. But if you're curious, maybe, let me give you a quote. And by the way, I have watered down this quote because it is not dignifying to say what he really says behind a pulpit, so... If you want the real quote, talk to me later, I'll give it to you. But here's the watered-down version. This is Sigmund Freud. Man's discovery that intimacy affords him the strongest experience of satisfaction and provides him with the prototype of all happiness suggests that man should continue to seek satisfaction through relationship, making eroticism the central point of his life. That's the quote of Sigmund Freud, and that is one of the most hyper-influential stances on our modern take on what we have. And if that's you and you stand behind that and say, I don't see the problem with that, I would just challenge you to go do some research and, and to look at how their lives went. What happened as they, so to speak, practiced what they preached? See if the destination of Freud's life really lands him into a position of flourishing and joy. See if it's compelling. Because like we talked about in the beginning, our culture is constantly promising happiness. It is constantly promising that, that everything can be maximized, your joy, your happiness, your purpose can all be maximized through living out your authentic desires, especially your inward physical desires. But, but who's to say my inward authentic self is good? Who's to say that the desires in my heart are right? I mean, what about the authentic inward desires of someone who would misuse that power or misuse that intimacy? How do you know that being true to yourself will lead to fulfillment or satisfy the longings of your soul, let alone bring happiness and flourishing? See, while Jesus' view that marriage of one man and one woman bound together in covenantal relationship sounds close-minded to Western culture, I would just as kindly as I can remind you that every major world religion in most cultures 
seem to line up with Scripture and Jesus rather than what our Western culture says is true and normal. And, and even more importantly, because for every no that Scripture has, it has a far more dignifying yes. It has a far more vivid and clear and good yes. So even more importantly, Scripture has a robust, dignifying view of intimacy. A vision making it so good it's like a fire. You can't just use it any old way or it'll destroy everything you live in, the house you live in. It needs a container, a fireplace. These restrictions are not to choke out its vibrancy, but to choke out the insecurity, the misuse, the wounding, the danger that comes with it. And then I'd finally just kind of speak to you guys that affirm the biblical position of this. And just remind you that, that might it be that one of the reasons that the church has seemingly lost ground within Western culture is that we don't actually present a compelling display of godly marriage and intimacy. Maybe redemption of biblical intimacy begins with the church's demonstration of joy and dignity within the true biblical marriage. I would just challenge for those of you that are married, please, please never be the type of person that's like, well, the old ball and chains got me locked up again. I can't do, she just won't let ever let me go golf. She's like, speak highly of this. This is what God's gift to humanity is. And if we start treating it the way the Bible treats it, maybe that changes the prospects of the world around us. Maybe we truly demonstrate the compelling reality of intimacy within God's own design. But there it is. There's my piece to say about that. Let's keep going. He goes on and he talks about religious sin. So he mentions idolatry and witchcraft. It's, it's the idea of worshiping foreign gods and trying to control things through power that, powers that are not God themselves. So again, our, our modern Western society isn't often tempted to worship Zeus. I don't think any of you had this week where I thought, I really want to bow down to Zeus. Probably not. And nor were you like, I really wish I could make potions to control my enemies. Don't think you thought either of those things. But there is this temptation to fall down and worship self or to entrust yourself to politics rather than God or worship something rather than God to worship by dedicating attention or money or love to anything before it goes to God. Paul says this is the reality of the flesh. And then he goes into societal sin. So we're going to hit these really fast bullet point. So hatred, enmity between you and groups, just disliking someone because they're from somewhere else. Discord, division caused by that hatred. Jealousy, becoming angry or resentful when someone else receives something good. Fits of rage, the eruption of emotion resulting in loss of control. Selfish ambition, seeking personal gain at the cost of others. Dissensions, arguments and strifes over personalities. Uh, factions dividing into group and identifying the other group as the enemy. Envy, desiring to possess what belongs to another. And for Paul, each one of these things has the ability to root into a once unified community and begin to fester until it rots the entire foundation from within. And to Paul, outside the spirit, this is the reality of everything. This is an unavoidable reality within churches, within families, within communities, within friend groups, within workplaces, within nations. You have to have the spirit for unity. And he goes on and he talks about alcohol sins, drunkenness, carousing, the idea of when all of these things come in fluxed onto me and I can't deal with them, I have to numb my mind from them. So Paul says all of this is a result of sin, of flesh. 
So the idea is when someone seeks the input of their own flesh, these will always be the eventual outputs. But what about if you input the Holy Spirit? And he goes in and he talks about this. But the fruit of the Spirit, as opposed to the works of the flesh, verse 22, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I wish we had room to study one of the, every one of these, but well, we just don't have the time for it. So let me just walk really quickly through this. The idea is that in the first group of fleshly sins, while it brings destruction and division, right here is the only hope for growth and unity together. The flesh will bring division and factions. This brings love, joy, peace, patience. It is the unifying factor of the Spirit. And Paul seems to think that when this is in place, you don't need a rule book. You don't need laws necessarily. You need the wisdom of the Spirit, and you need to keep in step with that Spirit, verse 24, to continually follow behind. So here's my point in all of this, and we'll answer these questions quickly. Here's my point. The Holy Spirit is the truest means of morality, upholding and drawing us closer to the person and character of God so that true human flourishing is not found with freedom or the pursuit of happiness. It is found in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So how do those of us who have those fruits of the Spirit interact with those who don't? How do we interact with the world in this way? And we have to start here. The only hope for understanding the system of God, the way instilled by God, is to have the Spirit of God. A world without the Spirit, a community without the Spirit, a person without the Spirit will always end up enslaved to their flesh. Meaning we cannot affirm their sin. We, we cannot just affirm their sin. The tendency of our culture is to say, ah, whatever, you do what's right for you, I do what's right for me. We have to be a people that stand on the word of God and not just affirm any old thing, but to say, no, there is a standard. And those things do not bring love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is only the residing Holy Spirit that brings those things. So we don't affirm the sin. But at the same time, sometimes we take that to the other end of the pendulum and we try to oppose the sinner. And that's not it either. We don't affirm the sin and we don't oppose the sinner. The other tendency is to come out and say, I can't believe people would do stuff like this. Look at how broken these people are. They're just idiots. I tell you what, I can't. Whoa, time out. Is that the way Jesus, is that the way Paul interacts with those people? No, that, that's not either. It's not affirming the sin, but nor is it opposing the sinner. It's neither of those things. The biblical model, Paul's model, is that we would understand both the sin and the sinner. And I might even include, I didn't put this in your bulletin, but you may want to add in, and the spirit. To understand the sin, the sinner, and the spirit all at once, and then go and demonstrate the fruits of the spirit, inviting a world in because their promised systems keep falling flat. I have a picture up here. This is a guy named Howard Hughes. So Howard Hughes, um, actually, on, on the left is Howard Hughes. On the right is um, an actor by the name of Rip Torn who's playing him because Howard Hughes later in his life would not allow any pictures to be taken of him. So this is an actor that's posing as him given the information he had about the end of his life. But Howard Hughes, uh, born in the 1920s, became an Academy Award-winning film, award film producer in the Hollywood Golden Age. He was known as one of the most influential, successful men on earth. He's a real estate tycoon, record-setting pilot, six foot four, iconic as one of the most desirable, handsome men on the planet. He has everything the world promised, money, intimacy, influence, power, fame. But by the time he turns 40, this all falls out. 
And he retreats and recluses into these hotels that he owned, into hotel rooms where he would have someone install a projector and he would just sit there and watch movies and then drug himself out of his own mind because he couldn't stand about it anymore. And so when people would go in to clean, they would find empty tissue boxes and they would find candles and all the lot. And people that saw him would say that they would see him like walking around with tissue boxes on his feet. Just the epitome of insanity. And I use this as an example because it stands to prove that what once for him started as the apex of fulfilling the world's promises turns in on itself and collapses his own life into shattering disappointment. We know this to be true. The world knows this to be true. We've seen it in action over and over again. We're still watching it in action over and over again. I mean, look, what Tom Brady and Giselle, right? Like everything you want, marriage still falls apart. Because our world keeps making these assumptions and these promises. It'll tell you over and over again, you're, you're born innocent and happy and, and whole. Your inner child is unquestionably good. The, the problem is that there's, there's families and there's binding traditions and there's traditional restrictions and religious restrictions and self-external or externally given identities and all of those things, they oppress you and they make your self-esteem low. So what life is about is it's escaping those things. If you could just escape those binding Binding, oppressive, externally given identities. If you can escape those traditions and religious restrictions, then you can discover your inner self and your inner self will guide you to happiness. So then life is all about pursuit of that inner self to fulfill the desires of the inner being. Purpose is found in finding that missing element, the, the soulmate, the meaningful career, the enjoyable experience, the material thing, or just the simple exercise of inner self-expression. And do those promises hold up? When you pursue it, does it result in fulfillment? No, it doesn't. The promise that technology and progress would make our lives better keeps falling flat. The promise that the pursuit of pleasure and desire brings happiness keeps falling flat. And instead we have skyrocketing statistics of anxiety and depression and brokenness. The input of self-focused pursuit of pleasure is only leading to the output of brokenness. So how do we interact with those who do not intentionally belong to God? And the only thing I can tell you is this, allow the Holy Spirit to be the input of your life. Allow the Holy Spirit to be the input of your life because the input of the Holy Spirit is everything the world longs for but cannot achieve. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That doesn't mean you need to go out and be hateful to those people that don't have it. But go and interact with those people that don't have it and put on display the power of the Spirit within you. Trust the fruit of the Spirit and this only comes through the gospel of Christ. So that in actuality, what we're inviting people into is not church. Sure, invite people to church. That's great and that's good. But let me just tell you, coming to church does not give you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are plenty of people that go to church every single Sunday, every single Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, and they live their lives in pursuit and they still don't get these things because it's not found in sitting in a pew. It's found in the grace of our Savior who then fills us with his spirit. But we must go interact with the world. So here's where we land. There's a people out there that do not belong to the Spirit. They do not belong to God. And they are desperate to find purpose and joy and meaning in the good things to come. And they keep falling flat. 
Are we ready to go reach them? Are we ready to intercept them? Are we ready to show them where true love is found? That starts with your experience. Maybe you've never experienced the Holy Spirit before because you've never put your faith in Christ. I'll be up here. I would love to pray with you about that. But maybe you have that. Are you demonstrating it to the world around you? Are we even interacting with those who are broken? Maybe it's time we start. Father God, we thank you for this word and your word. We thank you that even when we don't fully understand the whys of everything, you've given a clear understanding that God, your ways are right. And even when they don't seem right in our minds, they remain right. So help us to be a church that embraces the standard of your word. Help us to be a church that embraces the reality of your truth. And help us be a church that then has the output of the fruits of the Spirit that would impact the world around us undeniably. Thank you for all of that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.